Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Illustration Department podcast. My name is Giuseppe Castellano. In this podcast, I talk to folks in illustration, graphic design, publishing, animation, and other creative fields about their work, the lessons they've learned, and the bumps and bruises they've experienced along the way. In this episode, my guest is illustration historian, educator, and visual communicator, Jaylene Grove. True or false, if you include illustrations in a book, it makes readers stupider. It was a common belief in the 19th century. Thankfully, things have changed. Or have they? Among other topics, Jaylene and I talk about the public's general lack of awareness of illustration and why that matters. We discuss what women illustrators, both forgotten and remembered, were doing at the turn of the 20th century. And Jaylene explains why the illustration industry has had many deaths over the past 150 years and why we'll have many more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Uh, hold on. Stupid mic stand. Just work. There we go. <laughs> I think you should keep that in the recording because uh, it makes it very real. I think I just might. Good. <laughs> I shouldn't. I shouldn't call it stupid. It's been with me through thick and thin. This night. This this mic stand and. I don't know. I'll feel bad when I throw it away. Uh, I will feel bad. Now you're making me think of that IKEA uh, lamp commercial years ago. <laughs> oh, I don't know the one. I don't know that one. Oh, bad. Should it's, I look it up? Landmark in advertising. Yeah. Will I start it crying? Was, it's sad music. And someone picks up a little desk lamp and carries it like a child and leaves it on the sidewalk. <laughs> and then this this cruel IKEA voice comes in and says, "Don't feel sorry for the little lamp." The new one is much better. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, wow. Capitalist Ouch. going on. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I actually I, I um attribute emotion to uh everyday ordinary objects a little too much. I, I don't think it's a healthy thing to do. So if there's <laughs> I just I'm not a hoarder or anything. I, I in fact I like throwing things away, but I have to be in a certain mindset. If I'm in a very emotional mindset and I look at a thing and I remember I have mm. the memories that are related to that thing and I throw it mm. away. It like, it hurts. Yep. You know? <laughs> anyway, um, you said your work primarily is about documenting and analyzing historic illustration and illustrators. Why document? Why analyze? What value does that preservation of illustration bring to you? When we're doing this kind of work, uh, it's usually phrased as, you know, the greater good, the mm -hmm. importance of knowing our history, et cetera. The way you've said it, what does it mean to me? Well, um, <laughs> first of all, it's a career. So in the very analytical, cold, non-emotional, don't care about objects like little Ikea lamps way, <laughs> it's like, hey, man, it got me a job. <laughs> right, right. But. Uh, honestly, no one does work of any kind for a long time unless there's something in it that they actually like. And for me, this goes back right to earliest childhood. I was lucky enough to grow up in a family that valued history and had objects and mm. took me to museums and talked mm. about the importance of historical sites, but also how important it was just for understanding my own place in the world to understand, wait a minute, there's generations. There's a thing called time. Uh, stuff changes over time. Sometimes things are lost that kind of thread of connection is important. Right. Uh, and I just, I always liked reading, writing and drawing. Uh, and you can do all those things when you're documenting something like illustration. Right. So there's just 
plain old personal pleasure that I get out of it, as well as this cultural reference that's personal as well as societal. Did that interest sort of um, walk hand in hand along with your career as an illustrator, as an artist, or did that, did that come later? Yeah, I'd say it was there all the time, just because, like I said, it was role modeled for me. Mm. You know, I have a family member who's an art historian and would take me around pointing out architecture and things when right. I was a toddler, you right. know. Um, and so you just learn to look at the world in a very observational way, I suppose, not take mm. anything for granted. My parents are all scientists. I mean, their life is looking at things in really deep detail mm-hmm. uh, and understanding how they work. You know, my art was also, like all children, recording the world around me, family, houses, animals, and storytelling, of course, is something that all kids will do naturally, and it was encouraged as well. I got brought up in a strict uh, diet of library books. And, you know, my my earliest interests really were, I realized now as an art historian, um, very influenced by the pre-Raphaelite example, which came down to me as a child of the 70s and 80s in um, books like uh, Frank Baum's Wizard of Oz or The Lord of the Rings, um, Mm -hmm. uh, just your standard fantasy stuff that we got in North America. And, you know, I I liked making up characters and worlds and drawing those. And so in a way, history is a bit like that. Uh, Although you're working with more factual material, you are projecting yourself into the past and you have to imagine yourself in a world that is similar but different. It's a lot like engaging with a fantasy novel. For me, those, those are similar activities. So, uh, yeah, I originally trained uh, with kind of this broad shotgun approach to uh, fine art practice, graphic design, illustration. Um, but in the 90s, like when I first finished college the first time, <laughs> it was 1990, and there was... Um, you know, this uh, big recession that hit. Uh, don't know how old you are, Giuseppe, but uh, everybody was out of work, especially graphic designers. I was I was not out of work. I was, uh, Good for you. I was a freshman in high school. No, no, right. no, no, I wasn't. I was an eighth grade middle school. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So um, the only people getting jobs in my neck of the woods at that time, which was in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, was people who uh, had been at the job since forever and had seniority, they kept their jobs. Everyone below them got laid off. And the only new people getting jobs were those who had been quick on the uptake with computers. And I had just the skimpiest of computer training in the 80s. And I had no interest in them at that time. I felt they were too artistically limited, (laughs) which they were. So um, started freelancing. Mm-hmm. because strangely enough, I could get work in that until stock art came along. Uh, and then, um, mm-hmm. But I also had this interest in art history and very luckily kind of plopped into it because uh, the aforementioned relative who's an art historian turned me on to a collection held by a very elderly lady whose mother had been an illustrator. She had all her mother's stuff. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my God, we must do something with this. So I started doing something with it. I began cataloging it. I began shopping it around, trying to place it in some sort of permanent collection. Mm-hmm. I tried getting at shows. Um, I was only 25 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. Didn't really had no uh, formal training on how to do archive anything. Just, you know, my uncle's guidance uh, and my, I don't know, three art history classes, four art history classes from right. college. That right. was it. So the history was always there, kind of accompanying me as I went on my journey. So it was always sort of, in a way, going back and forth between this artist whose life I was uncovering and documenting 
and my own, and we we're separated by a hundred years right. in that process. Yep. Yeah. It feels like you were ahead of the game in two different ways. One mm -hmm. in archiving illustration, which back then, uh, I think it's a fair guess that, uh, wasn't really, you know, the thing to do. I mean, nowadays it very much is. I feel like there are more and more illustration and illustration history and with, mm -hmm. you know, the great work that so many curators are doing these days of, of you know, cataloging and um, revisiting, rediscovering, all of that stuff is happening. But back then, you know, illustrations were usually relegated to basements or attics or sidewalks. I mean, one of my yeah. favorite stories and I don't know how true this is, but I trust the person who told me, who was my illustration history teacher at grad school, basically, he essentially said, Condé Nast was cleaning house in Manhattan and left a bunch of Rockwell paintings on the sidewalk for sanitation. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know? Um, and then the other way you're ahead of the game is that you weren't just, you know, you weren't saying, like, I want to be this specific kind of illustrator or this specific kind of artist you sort of worked in multiple disciplines simultaneously. Again, today, I think that is the best way of going about being an illustrator. But back then, mm -hmm. was that normal for commercial artists to be doing a little graphic right. design, doing a little illustration, doing a little fine art? I'll say it was more normal in Canada than it was in the US. Okay. Uh, we're a smaller market up there, and more people than me have pointed out that all our great illustrators or Conversely, if you're talking about painters, all our great painters, they're the same people. <laughs> <laughs> um, everybody had to piece together their living from a bunch of different stuff. Right. And also the, the reigning paradigm for how to be a creative person in Canada was, was very much set by the arts and crafts movement, which did not differentiate between high and low. If you trained in visual art, you got a good dose of craft with that. And mm -hmm. you were expected to learn how to do lettering and layout composition, as well as how to paint oils, draw from life, etc. So that fine art trajectory and the, the graphic arts trajectory were recognized as kind of two different trajectories, but people did cross over a lot. So you will see a lot of people with quite successful careers in both. Okay doesn't mean that they maintain the same status in those because as the 20th century went on, we know what happened, right? High mm -hmm. and low got even more stark than mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. So we see happening that some of these illustrators uh, left their illustration work to pursue being painters and in some cases kind of denigrated their illustration careers. Mm -hmm. um, not so much as you find critics of the period denigrating those illustration careers. So there's this blind spot in the fine art world where you'll get a brief mention about someone's commercial art past or early years or whatever and they they act like that's in a bubble <laughs> and, and then the person graduated on to being a real artist <laughs> <laughs> and then and then the rest of the book yeah. the other you know 95 percent of the book is about uh, their their painting career or whatever right. that's now being seen more and more as a issue and uh, we're starting to see a lot more integration of talking about artists uh, mm -hmm. as the whole person mm -hmm. and noting that in fact many of these people did not let their commercial art careers go entirely they kept right. it up they kept doing things it's just it's no longer hidden away like right. it used to be yeah and there, back then in the 80s into the 90s there were artists who were blending the two sort of i mean blending yeah. maybe like totally eclipsing like barbara nessam mm -hmm. or francis jetter 
Mm -hmm. the, that work, you could hang it on a wall in a gallery in New York City, or you yep. could see it in the, you know on a page in the New York Times. Yeah, the, uh, there's always been pilfering back and forth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yep, a, lot of, totally. a lot of fine artists and stealing stuff from the illustration side. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, what value do you think? Back to documentation, analyzing, and all that. What value do you think that kind of work brings to us as a society, if any? Hmm. Um, well, uh, I think that it's good to know where you came from. It's good to have those that stuff documented so you can see what has changed as well as what has stayed the same. We don't really understand ourselves as a society if we've forgotten what happened before. And that can make it really hard to figure out why something is the way it is now. Although we are very good at forgetting. Even when we mm -hmm. know what came before us, we tend to yeah. consciously forget. A lot of the past is quite painful and embarrassing. <laughs> it's not flattering. True. And yet, if you don't acknowledge that and accept that that was so, then how do you make amends? now how do you right. fix that now how mm -hmm. do you even understand the plight of perhaps people who are got marginalized by whatever happened in the past mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. who are suffering the outcome of that still today how do you understand that in a more empathetic and um, urgent way if you don't know the facts of how bad it was right and that's the work that America on the whole has been and Canada have been doing over the past five years in particular. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. And with illustration specifically, I mean, we're talking about this isn't new. Um, this, mm -hmm. this isn't novel, but illustration has basically been dominated by white men for about 100 and well, more than 100 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, only now over the past five years and change have has there been change. Has there been a, finally a, a, a conscious, active um, redirection? It didn't happen magically by itself. The privileged white males you mentioned didn't suddenly have a change of heart just because, um, in fact, some of them have not had a change of heart. <laughs> oh. Still digging their heels in. Um, but generations pass away. Uh, <laughs> other people, other people. Oh God! Why do I? Why do I want you to name illustrator names? I don't. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> no, I'm not. That's a bad that. luck. There's people who refuse to stay quiet, and and said, "Look, you know, this is happening. That is happening. Hmm. Uh, that's really not great." And and so social pressure is needed to mm -hmm. to sort of make something actually matter or be important or show that there's going to be a social cost if you continue to do this. So we've seen many people over the years, uh, you know, stand up to the forces that be mm -hmm. and work outside of those of the, of the mainstream because you have to carve your own space if you're if you're not accepted by the mainstream mm -hmm. without becoming everything the mainstream wants. If you want to do your own thing and, and there's value to that, you have to be tough and figure out ways to do that on right. your own. Right. But that is it's so important because uh, it's survival. You know, uh -huh. survival, physical survival for, for those who are not addressed. The way I'm looking at it is, as a, by the way, as a cis white dude, to me, it feels more like an expansion versus a displacement. It's just yeah. people are uh, widening their view on what, you know, what kind of illustration could be um, brought to the forefront and from whom. It's not just you know creating more room at the table though you also have to question the table mm 
some people who are threatened by loss of table <laughs> may see it as displacement. Really, it's it's just making a more equitable space yeah. that can include people without forcing them to, you know, abide to the rules as they are. Right. Mm-hmm. So follow me on this one. Mm-hmm. I was listening to a podcast you were on while standing in line at a Wawa. Do you know what a Wawa is? I don't. The word to me is Cree and it means egg. Oh. Or it's um, some other indigenous languages. It means baby. Probably is. <laughs> um, it's a it's a convenience store. It's like Seven Eleven okay. or something. But it's very much it's very much a big deal uh, where I where I am in Pennsylvania and Maryland and stuff, Delaware. So, anyways, I'm at, I'm at a Wawa. Several older, grizzled men wearing boots, caked in dirt, were standing in front of me in line. Mm-hmm. They appeared to be contractors or farmers or something, and there's a lot of those around here where I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the dichotomy between what I was seeing and what I was hearing, because I was listening on my headphones, mm. was fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, I wondered, like, what would they think about what you were saying about art history, the isms in art over the centuries, leave d'artistes? Uh, William Morris's philosophy on book design. I mean, I loved all of that. But what would they, I mean, I don't want to, what I don't want to sound like, I don't want to sound like, oh, they don't know anything about art or illustration, but there's a decent Mm. chance they don't know who William Morris is, right? Mm -hmm. Anyway, I came to the conclusion that they weren't the intended audience for that discussion. And I think they should be. Oh, what a radical proposal. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that our cultural history should ideally be accessible to everyone and be pitched in a manner that it is listenable. I'll right, say. right. Because accessible is one thing. It's like, okay, the podcast is public online. That is accessible. Um, but is it? Um, someone might be able to get their hands on it, but are they going to seek it out? Are they in the networks to even know it exists? No. Like, you know, someone not in art is probably never going to run across that other podcast, which I think you're referring to one a couple of years ago for an English outfit that just does art-based stuff. Uh, yeah, um, that's and the they specifically wanted to talk about this chapter that I wrote on on avant-garde illustration. The moment you're saying avant-garde, you've carved out a really tiny amount of people. <laughs> <laughs> it's inherently already a closed room, if you will. Sure. Um, and so knowing that, you know, the discussion is already presupposing a whole bunch of information. And if you don't have the basics of that already, like, first of all, what's the definition of avant-garde in the art world? <laughs> you know, because sure. people know it maybe as a military term, but they don't know it as an art term. That person's not going to find it listenable because mm-hmm. they have no clue what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, they're kind of guessing or making like a, a little inference, but yeah. who's got patience for that? And then how do you make it relevant to their life? Right. There you go. Yeah. I think we can make William Morris uh, delightful for anybody. William Morris fairly easy because he's pretty. Um, <laughs> you show this he he is a good looking. Yeah, he was good looking. That's true. And, no, I didn't mean how he I know. <laughs> and although he does have a splendid beard. A very um, splendid beard. <laughs> no, uh, the artwork is attractive to the eye, true. no matter who you are. Now, your, your construction guy with the boots and all that, um, he is not about to run out and buy a shirt made out of a William Morris pattern. Right. Or decorate his bathroom with wallpaper from William William Morris design. 
unless your construction guy is into fixing up old houses. Hmm. Okay. Uh, you can get to William Morris through the trades pretty easily. That person may have been employed to redo a heritage building of some kind, in which mm -hmm. case getting William Morris wallpaper would be completely understandable. Mm -hmm. And and they would probably think this is beautiful stuff. I admire it, um, et cetera. Plus, William Morris is, perhaps enjoys a bit of a gender-biased appreciation, I'll say, because uh, he is involved in the decorative arts. And so we see a lot of women working in the crafts and decorative art-related things. He's mm -hmm. still big among anyone involved in textiles, for instance. Mm -hmm. So suppose uh, there is someone in this person's life uh, who does mm -hmm. quilts. They undoubtedly know who William Morris is. Right. I know. I want to be clear here too. I, I don't. This person that we're talking about, this person standing in front of me at Wawa, it's not that person specifically that I, that I'm I'm assuming knows nothing about. Who knows? That person probably has an art degree at MICA and then couldn't get an art job and now works in construction. Who who knows? Exactly. My point is, it's all fine and good for mm -hmm. us to talk amongst ourselves at, as illustrators, as illustration academics, mm -hmm. illustration appreciators. But if we aren't actively connecting society with illustration's value and importance, we're in trouble, mm -hmm. yeah. I think. And you know what? I mean, it's people come to illustration shows in, in museums and galleries when they happen much more readily than they will to your standard fair and mm. art museum. And exactly. I hear this from the museums and curators at them themselves when they have <clears throat> pinched their noses and accepted, for instance, uh, a Norman Rockwell exhibition. Mm -hmm. And and uh, they all have to balance the books. And they know which shows are the crowd pleasers. Mm -hmm. uh, and they'll rotate an Impressionist's show through, for instance, because they know that they will make a ton of money on, at the door on it. Uh, same reason why they're taking Norman Rockwell. I, <laughs> and that's that's good that news, right? It is what I have actually heard from people in those positions to yep. uh, decide what's going on in a museum schedule. Mm -hmm. They don't personally like Rockwell. They even feel embarrassed to take it because they oh, feel like stop. it's still, you know, terrible for their reputation okay. as a curator. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but they do recognize that it gets mm -hmm. a lot of people in the door. Uh, and it's funny because once they do that and now they suddenly have to learn about Rockwell, their their opinions often change because Rockwell is not nearly as simplistic as oh, people no. say mm -hmm. <laughs> at all. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So you, Susan Doyle and Whitney mm -hmm. Sherman co-edited, co-created a, a book called History of Illustration. Us and like a hundred other people. Yeah, I know. It's 592 <laughs> pages published mm -hmm. by Bloomsbury in 2018. Yeah. Stephen Heller said the book yeah. was the first of its kind and a long time coming. You had no budget, little time, yeah. and most of the text was written by, what, 35 volunteers? Yep, that's about right. Stephen yeah. called it a landmark. <laughs> you called it a milestone. The purpose mm -hmm. of the book was <laughs> that it's a textbook for undergraduates. It, at the time, there really wasn't anything like that that could connect yeah. academics with like really like allow academics to teach the history of illustration. There really wasn't a lot of, there wasn't like a consolidated source or resource. 
Um, there had been uh, none had been published within recent memory, right. and they're really hard to find, and of course, completely out of date. Right. <laughs> so, so, in that sense, yeah, it was filling a major gap. But I want to say it doesn't fill the gap all the way because no, it can't. Tons of stuff out there, yeah. and because we were working with volunteers, we could only go with who's volunteering, right? And if we didn't have an expert to cover whatever subject matter, it's missing. Much to my shame, uh, Polish posters are missing out of the book, for instance. Did you ever think about <laughs> so. possibly making it not a textbook? You know, maybe not. Yeah, it's a textbook now. Okay. Mm-hmm. Why not repurpose the material and turn it into a book for the public? Yeah. Um, well, we had all these debates at the beginning. This actually began with a very large conversation with a lot of people back in 2012. Around a table, well, another table with well, a little lamp. The virtual table. Yeah. The virtual table. Ikea lamp. Um, actually, yeah, Ikea lamp. Uh, I have to say the conversation had been going for many, many, many years um, before we started the book, I had been approached lots of times by people saying, will you please write a textbook? We need a textbook. We need a book. And and I would run into people saying, oh, so-and-so's writing a book, or I'm thinking of writing a book. And so we're like, how many books are on the go? <laughs> and so we networked around and stuff and said, show us the books. What's going on? Because we don't want to do this if there's someone else about to publish, right? Mm-hmm. Like that'd be stupid. We need to know. And nobody came forward and nobody has come forward. Uh, So all the books that were purportedly on the go Mm -hmm. were close to being published. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we did a survey and 300 people answered that survey. We got it out to the educational community, to students, to dealers, to collectors, to illustration studies professors, to art illustration history experts like as many camps as we could because it was my thing all the time was to say that this has got to include as many points of view as possible because the last thing I wanted to see was uh, a single author volume that would be that single author's lens Mm -hmm. so I mean there's good things and bad things about both approaches Mm -hmm. we we just went with the collective approach and we have some issues because of the collective approach but um the upside of it was that there's a little bit of everything in there and there's contradictions throughout about how people define illustration, for instance, which I think is healthy because sure. you, you can't make gross generalizations about illustration because there's just too many kinds, too many uh, contexts, <laughs> uh, too many opinions. And illustration is actually a really complex thing that happens. Mm-hmm. You can't dumb it down at all. Anyway, I think I got off from answering your <laughs> No, you got it. Well, <laughs> well, all right. Well, we're on the subject. Yeah. Jaylene, how would mm-hmm. you define illustration? <laughs> I actually tackled this in my master's thesis, which had to do with the status of illustration in, in the art world. Mm-hmm. And so I defined it with the purpose of trying to set it apart from an art practice in the way it's normally discussed. Mm-hmm. And I said that illustration and must aim to communicate. Fine art doesn't have to. Yeah. That role of communication, I think, is essential to whatever definition you're going to come up with. Nice. Yeah. That's a good one. That's a clear one. I probably completely um, jaded. I'm sure everybody else you interview would say the same. <laughs> There's been some different definitions and stuff. My, mm. the, my, my personal one is it's all in the value of it. So with fine art, the value of the thing is in the thing itself. With illustration, the value of the thing is in the reproduction of the thing. 
That's the difference between fine art and illustration. Pretty good, but then you're stuck with this idea of reproduction. Well, I mean, (laughs) an illustration, what is an illustration if it's not reproduced? You can have all kinds of things that illustrate that are not reproduced. For instance, murals can illustrate stuff. Cave cave wall paintings, um, they illustrate stuff. Oh, damn but it. unless you're photographing it, <laughs> which, okay, make that argument. I should know um, that because I say the Sistine Chapel is the greatest mm-hmm. piece of illustration ever, but. Uh, There's only one. Yeah. Damn, <laughs> you're right. right. All right. I need to. Um, and I think that's the thing. It's like anytime you come up with a definition, there's always a hole. There's yeah. Always, uh, there are always exceptions. That's right. That's why my definition is hardly a definition at all. <laughs> it's about an element. Um, the other thing is. Uh, you can illustrate something you never show to anyone. Like people illustrate their own personal diaries that they burn before they die. No one sees. Hmm. That's still illustrating. It's just okay. not for a public. All right. Illustration is art created by people who know how to draw. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Any wow. fine artists out there? What oh, do you problems. say? Problems. Unsubscribe yeah. to the podcast. Um, <laughs> See, now you have to get into what is drawing. Oh, no, we don't. We don't have to get into that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I've, I write 2,200 character biographies on Instagram about illustrators and, uh, and illustration adjacent artists. I do, I, personally, I do it for a lot of reasons. One, I enjoy it. It's fun. Mm-hmm. I love learning about illustrators, especially those who I've never heard of or were never taught, even though we should have been taught about them when mm-hmm. I went to RISD. And uh, it helps me to become a better teacher because as I learn more about what happens in the past, as you said earlier, it clarifies how to move forward mm-hmm. with, with whoever I'm talking to. You know, it's like, oh, you want to do this? Well, you should look at this illustrator, that illustrator, and this illustrator. Here's how they approached the same problem. Yep. And in my own small, small, small way, I want to pay tribute to these illustrators, especially the ones that we've all but forgotten. Mm-hmm. And there's two that I've recently been looking up and studying up on and writing about. And I'm hoping you have some insight on these two people. Their names are Catherine Beverly and mm-hmm. Elizabeth Ellender. Do those names ring a bell at all? <laughs> nope. All right. So a little while back, I came across a book at this used bookstore near where I live called The Book Barn. It's this Mm -hmm. century-old barn that was converted into a bookstore. If you live near Westchester, Pennsylvania, you probably know what I'm talking about. Anyway, the book was Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen. Mm -hmm. It was published in 1929, Mm -hmm. created by two women who I did learn would often work together on books. Mm -hmm. Who were they? Why do they work together? What's their story? For the life of me, I could not find those answers. It was frustrating. Mm-hmm. It is yeah. frustrating. What frustrates you most about studying and documenting illustration history? Lack of archives. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is hard to find the information, um, especially the bottom end, but not the very bottom end, um, up to kind of the, the top end of the mid-range of print. So we get this polarization in collections, Mm -hmm. which concentrates on anything regarded as special. So obviously the high end, the artist books and stuff like that, Leap d'Artiste, et cetera, those are all in the rare books collections. And the 
when I say the bottom of the bottom end, I mean the pornography, the really, really super trashy stuff, the mm -hmm. lurid pulps, like the lowest lowbrow, mm -hmm. because that too is seen as extreme. So you've got kind of the fancy high end extreme and the non fancy lowest low extreme. Those capture people's interest mm -hmm. um, deeply. People care about that stuff, either for prurient reasons or connoisseurial reasons or whatever, and they kept it. All the murky stuff in the middle that's sort of interesting or flat out boring, or there's tons of it, that no one kept because mm -hmm. it was just seen as not special. Um, and furthermore, too much of it. So it's gone. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you're looking for people like these women here, um, it can be really difficult because they were seen as minor, but not weird enough to be interesting. Uh, there was tons of women flooding into illustration at that time. That's where we get the ones that we remember the best today, like Jesse Wilcox Smith and Elizabeth Shipping Green and so on. Mm -hmm. um, Violet Oakley. And... Violet Oakley. Mm -hmm. it, it, there's just there's a lot of quite successful female illustrators at the time. Now, those those few that we're naming have since been elevated by recent collecting and scholarship and so on to be household names within the illustration community. Mm -hmm. But there was tons of other women getting this kind of work, lots of them, through the teens and into the 20s, and bunches you're finding in the 30s. Why don't we know about them? <laughs> well, because... <laughs> yeah. The field did start to crack down a bit on women entering the profession because of the Depression, then the war years, then the 50s, which we know is fairly oppressive for women trying to enter the workforce. Yep. 60s, and then we have people like Barbara Nessim saying that when she took her portfolio around by then, she was such a novelty that she just gets stared at and they talk to her because, oh my God, a woman in our office, what is she doing here? Why isn't she married? You know? Right, right. <laughs> and it's like, what happened if you go back of previous seven? years there were women now they did not have equal access they were put off into kids books which is why these women are doing snow queen um, that was gender appropriate to do things that would have a more youthful audience or women's interests something like sure. that so that's the other thing sexism you're not going to see the women's work as much because it was women's work uh was not considered important the way men's work was right yeah and i mean it, you know in the mid-1920s when the new yorker launched yep. they actually hired a lot of women illustrators yeah, um one right. was barbara sherman was mm -hmm. one of the early new yorker illustrators as was um oh god what is her name fall out of my head ethel mcclellan Plummer. Mm -hmm. sure there were the red rose girls and the new yorker illustrators who were women and then a handful of others but in comparison to how many illustrators were men at the time and how much work yeah. was going to them and like good work, mm -hmm. I guess it was it's yeah. still obviously quite imbalanced. Absolutely. Um, and this is one of the reasons we want to document is because we don't really know how imbalanced because so few got written down to begin with. Right. So we got to find those records. Catherine Beverly and Elizabeth Eleanor. Right. But we do know uh, that a lot of women were illustrating in catalogs, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, small uh, like periodicals. Uh, so all these sort of nooks and crannies that, you know, who is bothered to document who is illustrating Sears Roebuck catalogs? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. a lot of women went into fashion. Again, all these parts of illustrating where you, you weren't necessarily allowed or expected to sign your work. 
lot of what's out there we just don't know who did it but we do know that women were out there with doing work in these fields right you know Catherine Beverly and Elizabeth Ellender for me the the, the two of them are fascinating and through mm-hmm. through the over the years you know learning more about illustrators writing about illustrators posting about them on Instagram there have been quite a few really interesting stories that have come up and I, I have to imagine with everything that you've done in that field the field of cataloging of researching and discovering rediscovering I'm guessing you came across one or two really interesting stories oh yeah <laughs> Well, it depends what you consider interesting, I suppose. Um, Maybe it shows up. It shows up on like uh, Tuesday nights on Fox. That that sort of interesting. (laughs) Right up there on my list of viewing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But interesting, and just in terms of entertaining, how's I'll say it that way. Entertaining. I know you're 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 fishing for me to tell a story about somebody that has been kind of lost, rediscovered, perhaps. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, I got one. You do. Do you do you want to tell me, and maybe I can riff off that. I'm All thinking right. about things that other people have discovered that are interesting. <laughs> I'm not sure, I've done a lot. I well, mean, there's the person that I started out with. I can tell you all about her, but I don't know if that's actually the kind of interesting you're after. <laughs> no, tell me who. So this artist that I mentioned that I began cataloging her work way back in the '90s. Um, her name was Olive Allen, and then she married a man named Biller. So she became Olive Allen Biller. This okay. is another thing with tracking the women. Their names change. So oh, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to know what their maiden name was. Fortunately, she inserted hers. Nice. But uh, yeah, you gotta you have to search more than one name to find people. Okay, so um, well, she came, interestingly enough, from a family where the women had quite a bit of power and influence, I'll say, in the, in the dynamics of the family, because mm-hmm. her mother was a director of a girls' school. So this is in England in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. These little private schools were all over the place, and her mother was running one of them. And her elder sisters, all of herself, was the youngest of seven kids, and her elder sisters were teaching at the school. Uh, as part of a reform of girls' education in the late 19th century, there's this movement where schools like this took on a much more progressive idea, now, I will say a proto-feminist idea mm-hmm. of how girls could be educated, and we're giving them a high school education equivalent to what boys would get so that they could matriculate into university. That was the purpose. Mm-hmm. So she's come from this thing that's obviously where she was educated herself. She goes off and gets a traditional arts and crafts education in Manchester, And uh, then she moves on to the Slade, which is still famous for art school training. And she uh, had joined many other young women at the time. Many of these schools, both U.S. and U.K. at the time, the the female enrollment was higher than the male. Michelle Bogart, uh, Professor Michelle Bogart, has written stuff about how the illustration industry at that time started to beef up its masculinity because it was threatened by the feminization of the field. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so she comes out as a children's book illustrator. You know, I think her, her life story is sort of telling in a way, first of all, that she kind of follows the path that's out there to go into that. Because if you look at her earlier work, she's actually quite influenced by the so-called weird school of black and white illustration in the the 1890s in England, Mm -hmm. where people were very interested in creepy, weird, fantastical, bizarre imagery. Uh, I'm thinking of people like Sidney Syme, for instance, and even Rackham's coming out of that a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so her, her earliest 
student work. She's like 18, 19 years old. <laughs> it's quite bizarre. And she even illustrates a book that's a fantasy book by another woman about this. It has a story in it about uh, a made-up world of ants. And so she's illustrating all these ant characters. <laughs> Completely crazy. Nice. Anyway, she drops that when she gets to the Slade and turns to the super cute uh, thing, which was acceptable for women who wanted a career in publishing to do. So she she conforms. And I think that kind of conformity is worth talking about because I think it still happens. I see that with our own students um, is that in their their sophomore year where I teach at Rhode Island School of Design, mm -hmm. we see great experimentation um, and we try to keep that going. But sometimes students are really scared about how unemployed they might be when they graduate. And we see them starting to set their sights on the biggest, most famous illustration industries right now, which is like concept art, backgrounds, characters, uh, game dev, all that stuff, right. uh, or manga. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, they're, they're trying to fit into that world. And we see the experimentation drop away a bit for a lot of them. And that makes me very sad. Some things never change, right? This is why we study history. It's like, okay, what happens when you do that, when you just go with the industry flow. Olive Allen, back in 1900, begins going with the industry flow. I see a real discrepancy between her published work and her private work, you know, because I have this privileged access to her diaries and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's still doing kind of sort of very jokey things, sort of uh, she's doing private caricature, cartooning, and all this stuff that if she had had that outlet, I think she could have become a quite significant early female comics artist or cartoonist because right. it, it was a new thing that women could be funny in the 1890s. Like a, a properly brought up young lady mm -hmm. could not be funny. They could be have sort of a genteel wit, but you weren't supposed to be like ha ha or even fighting. Mm -hmm. So um, and yet she is that same generation of, of the few women who did make it into cartooning and comics who did manage to keep exercising that and did some pretty cool things. So what is lost when someone like her cannot take her more feminist and pointed characters and messages out into a public? Right. We just exactly. get hegemony and perpetuation of the sexist status quo. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so I have two. One's really <laughs> short and sweet, and yep. another one is a little longer and much darker. The short and sweet one is, for anyone who listens who has ever had a bowl of tomato soup, mm -hmm. then you definitely need to know who Grace Drayton is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she co-founded a club to support women artists. She was one of the first women in comics. And she, I'll say almost, I was going to say single-handedly, she almost single-handedly created Campbell's Kids. Mm -hmm. So Campbell's Soup today owes a lot of their early success to Grace Drayton. Yeah. <laughs> the other one, if anybody here, anyone listening loves Charles Dickens, <laughs> pay attention. Because you might not after I finish my story. <laughs> this is the this is the sorted, you know, Fox at you know Tuesday nights on Fox, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So it involves Dickens and an illustrator by the name of Robert Seymour. <laughs> by the 1830s, Seymour was a successful illustrator. He was living a very comfortable life with his family. He was doing really well. In fact, he was later called the Shakespeare of caricature. Yep. 
1836, everything goes to hell. Uh He fell on hard times because his publisher publicly shamed him. And at the time when you get publicly shamed, I mean, I guess the, hey, same for today. Um, Really terrible things happen. So he was desperate for work. He approaches this publisher called Chapman and Hall with an idea to illustrate the misadventures of a sporting club. So they're like, yeah, that sounds great. So they hire this writer who at the time was considered to be a hack by the name of Charles Dickens. Yep. Mm-hmm. Dickens, Chapman and Hall take over Seymour's idea. Dickens renames it. And there might be some listeners who are thinking the Pickwick Papers. Yeah. You would be right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Dickens, I mean, he says he's unhappy with Seymour's work, but who the hell knows why he <laughs> fires Seymour yeah. off the project in 1836. Three days later, Seymour ends his life with a hunting rifle, which think about that for a second. Yeah. That's a hard, that's a hard way to go. I'm not saying Dickens shot the guy, but that's weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. In a later edition of the Pickwick Papers, Seymour's cancellation is complete when Dickens says, Mr. Seymour never originated or suggested an incident, a phrase, or a word to be found in this book, which is completely untrue. (laughs) Anyway, we'll never know. Like, we'll never know what could have been if if Dickens never showed up in in Robert Seymour's life. All we can Mm do is... Is guess and and Robert Seymour at the time was one of the like great illustrators of the time and who knows what his career would have been mm-hmm. had the Pickwick Papers or whatever Seymour would have called it had it had that been had that come from him and not Dickens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, this Dickens' attitude towards illustrators has been written about quite a bit, and yeah, that's a pretty unfortunate episode. Right. But in England at the time, it was uh, common enough that publishers knew that they could sell illustrations uh, if they had a popular, recognized, tested illustrator, um, and they would they would say, "Come up with some funny pictures," and then yes, then they would uh, go commission them some, as you said, hack writer to go build a story around it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, I like telling people this because for a long time, illustration was denigrated as being secondary to the text. But in fact, <laughs> at times we see that the text is secondary to the illustrations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a case. Now, the thing is, Dickens didn't like that because he was, he was an ambitious guy. And let's be fair, he's a talented writer. Uh, and he didn't like it that he was playing second fiddle and that someone like Seymour would get kind of the bulk of the glory uh, and set the narrative, um, the parameters for it and all that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a real struggle between illustrators and writers that we see in the 19th century. Uh, So Dickens makes a power move and, and, you know, decides to be a dick to illustrators. (laughs) Uh, And, and says, This is a G rated podcast, Jaylene. What are you doing? (laughs) I got to edit that out. I've heard another one earlier where you left the <laughs> F-bomb in. So I oh, I know. I, I'm, a, I'm a cusser. What can I tell you? <laughs> well, so am I, as my students know. Um, anyway, so, yeah, Dickens basically makes a big thing about authors should be, you know, writers should be the author and not share authorship with illustrators mm. or any of that. And mm. there, there's a real power struggle between the image and the word through the 19th century. And that's partly because things were suddenly getting illustrated a lot more than they ever had been before. Right. And for increased publics and, and publishing runs, because now we're into, you know, wood engraving, which was comparatively cheap and easy to do compared to 
previous printmaking uh, and the presses were now automated and steam powered and everything. Uh, so there's a lot more writing on it and they saw kind of like, well, they're not all wrong, right? To say that illustrations are a problem if you're a writer, for instance, and I get students to workshop this in class all the time. It's like, what are the problems with illustration? If you're going to critique it, right? And oh, okay. And they, they come up with ideas. Mm -hmm. In the 19th century, one of the issues what, that was argued with seriousness, and maybe we need to keep it in mind and not dismiss it, was that uh, if you give people pictures, you're making them stupider because they're not exercising their own imagination. Hmm. That was an argument. So hmm. I'm not say here what parts of that I think are false or not false I think it depends a lot on <laughs> the type of thing you're illustrating and the purpose of the audience sure. uh, but that was the argument mm -hmm. and it was one that writers made to try and get their works to be not illustrated and then we see sort of struggles of high and low within the literary field as time progresses we see that attitude towards having pictures and things is seen as immature or for a less sophisticated audience mm -hmm. uh you know pictures are for kids kind of attitude you know at the end of the century then we have mallarmé who's gonna take a stand for avant-garde poetry and says famously i am for no illustration which wasn't technically true because he kept working with artists yeah well, a different kind of book illustration. <laughs> but, right, because right. behind uh, closed doors, he knew that the art actually helped sell the book. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, All right, Malamay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this is where Dickens is kind of putting his oar into all these conversations that are just starting in the 1840s with this <laughs> new mass media that's happening. Yeah. Seymour, <laughs> so, I don't know why he killed himself. I, I actually don't know enough about him. I, I think he was pretty well regarded and I doubt losing Dickens as a client would have really been the end of his career. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he could have kept getting work. Yeah. It's, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Yeah. He must yeah. have had, he must have had really long arms. That's all I got to say. <laughs> I like to use your toe. <laughs> oh yeah. There you go. Or some string and a doorknob or something. Mm -hmm. I feel like if Charles Dickens had a Twitter account and he announced a book that he had written, mm -hmm. And he was like, hey, everyone, here's the cover reveal. He would not include yeah. the illustrator's name in the tweet. <laughs> Given his attitude, that's quite, that's a plausible yeah. theory. Mm -hmm. Him and a lot of other, other current current authors who, uh, yeah. for whatever dumb reason, just refuse to, it's free marketing, man. A lot of the illustrators yeah. who work on these books have bigger social communities yeah. than the authors do. And yet they the authors refuse and I don't know, refuse is the right word, but they just continue to omit the illustrator from these posts mm. and blogs and stuff. And uh, I mean, yeah. do, it, do it in your own peril, guys, because illustrators can get the word out better than you can. Oh, yeah. And when I see anyone reviewing or mentioning a book or something, that's, and they haven't mentioned the illustrator, I usually drop a line saying, could you please share the name of the illustrator? Oh, um, bless you, Julian. Yeah. Nice. I mean, there was, um, there was activity a couple of years ago among advocates in the picture book community pressuring publishers to start making sure that they mention the illustrator on the cover in the same size font as the writer. Yeah. Because particularly in picture books, image and word are on equal footing, if not more tipped towards the illustrators. Picture. Um, picture yeah. first. Picture then book. the book. Hello. Picture yeah. book. And uh, 
there was one publisher, I forget who it was, maybe better not to name them, but they kicked back and said, oh, no, our style for a long time has been to just have the author on the cover. We couldn't possibly change our style. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, for God's sake. Yeah. If your excuse to not change something is, well, this is how it's always been done, you know it's time to change it. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So we've been talking a lot about the history of illustration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Before we end it here. Let's touch on the future. Mm -hmm. What is the future of illustration? And I'd like you to answer yeah. in the like rah-rah cheerleading sense and in the <laughs> like doom and gloom sense. Mm -hmm. Is that too, is that too restrictive? No, <laughs> no. Um, like the other thing earlier, some things never change. Uh, so obviously this is a loaded question right now because at the moment everybody's upset about AI. True. So that that's definitely going to change it up. But again, that's the reason why it's helpful to know our history. Um, right. How many how many deaths of illustration have have there been over the past many, 150 many. years? Yeah, lots. Um, so what will happen is <laughs> my big predictions here is parts of the field will definitely change. Some parts don't really need to change and won't. Um, so for instance. Uh, well, I mean, we are in slightly different territory because AI can do the creative work as well as the technical work, and we never had those two things together. And as someone pointed out, there's that meme, very smart, clever meme that's gone around for a number of years now where you, you have uh, things that are good, things that are cheap, and things that are fast. You can have two of those things at one time, but you can't have all three. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now you can <laughs> for certain stuff. Right? Yep. Um, of course, we're, people are going to say, but AI is crap. And I'm like, wait for it. Uh, so AI yeah, can't do everything. Uh, so parts of the industry are going to be just fine. It's not going to take away from people who are still doing wood engraving, for instance. You know, they're like the, the future of artist books is secure. It will nip away at the fields, or maybe not nip away, but definitely transform the fields where AI can mimic that stuff really well. So I think people who've been making a tidy little sum building VR clip art and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. All the assets for game and such. Uh, a lot of that is now going to be a little threatened because people can make their own pretty easy, cheap, and if they're not too worried about it looking a specific way. Mm. Fine. Um, high end of everything is always going to be intact because there's always going to be markets there for people who want custom something. And I don't mean custom from machine learning. I mean custom from human beings. Right. Uh, and they want, like, it's really hard to get exactly what you want out of AI. Yeah, that's going to improve exponentially. It's, for the moment, anyway, it's still quicker to tell someone to draw something than it is to tell a machine. Mm -hmm. And we still have far more stylistic variation and control mm -hmm. with human beings, um, especially working in traditional media, I will say, as well as or instead of digital. So if some client is willing to or wants uh, that level of bespoke design, and rendering and so on, they will be willing to pay for it because they see its benefits. Uh, what we will lose is the cheap stuff. Uh, a lot of the low, well, we already have seen this. The the end of the market that was already exploitive and near free just became totally free. Right. <laughs> so right. I'm talking, you know, uh, somebody who wants uh, some drawing to go on a pamphlet that they're giving out at church, or someone who's making their own greeting cards, mm -hmm. uh, Somebody, you know, it's just like 
people who didn't have a budget to commission thing in much of anything anyway, but they maybe used to get someone's teenage kid to do it. Now they're not bothering. Right. So, or even, or even like, like single image, single Mm -hmm. image projects, like what you just described, or Mm -hmm. even if they do have a budget, I saw recently a museum was Mm -hmm. promoting a, a dinosaur exhibition and they had a poster accompanying their marketing an illustrator tagged me um, on this and on Instagram. I was like, take a look at this crap. And it was a T-Rex in front of the Capitol building. And the T-Rex had, and I kid you not, probably 12 claws on one (laughs) leg, you know? Good enough. Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) And it's like a decent, you know, it's a, it's a museum. They got money. They please, they have a several thousand dollars to an actual illustration. Yeah, it's embarrassing. It's oh, like the other so museum that, that hung a, an AI ripoff of Vermeer in the place of the real Vermeer that's been loaned out to a Vermeer exhibition. Oh, what? And they decided, they decided to fill the empty space on the wall with an AI one. Oh, oh man. my God. Yeah, that was just going around last I week. sometimes find it really difficult to try to stay, <laughs> yeah. to try to stay calm and mature and even keep oh, yeah. about this stuff. Yeah. So what we're going to see, this is another future prediction thing, uh, is a renewed interest in taste. (laughs) And um, there's going to be people who are just going to be like, if it looks like AI, even if it isn't, I'm not going anywhere near it because people will mistake it for AI. And I don't want my brand associated with that. Right. So, hey, guess what? Um, Actually, what I'm hearing from a colleague at RISD uh, who does admissions, they looked at over 250 portfolios. And they said almost all of them were in traditional media. They haven't seen this in years. So people are already. You can't see me, but I have a giant a smile on my face right now. Good. Yeah. No. So there's already a backlash starting. Oh, 100%. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, Jaylene, uh, I was at the Society of Illustrators in mm-hmm. November, December, yeah. looking yeah. at the original art show. Yeah. And on the conservative side, I would say 75, 80% of the pieces on the wall were traditionally made. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, I mean, SI and other places have, have put their foot down. So yeah, absolutely no AI is making it to, into our exhibition. No, but even like Photoshop, like there was there was very little photo, you know, illustration done yeah, in Photoshop. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Procreate or yeah. whatever. So, uh, so that's, that's going to happen. We're going to see a bit more return to basics and, and the personal is going to become really important Love because it. unless you're training the AI in your own art, which people are, you want something that's yours, like fully yours. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's going to be that. Okay. So that, that's a happy future for those doing more. Wait, that was happy? Stuff. Yeah, I think so. Because, <laughs> you know, no, I, hey, let's go back to I what mean, I said. some We've of that was happy. taste developing. We have clientele. We will have patronage for people who value stuff that's not AI. And as we're extrapolating, not even stuff that's digital. Okay. So right. um, that that's going to increase. People are, are planting their flag on, in the camp they're in and they're going to stick to that because mm-hmm. feelings mm-hmm. are high about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's good news for, for those who are doing that kind of work. There's going to be a market for it. There's going to be support and appreciation um, that will continue. How, will it be huge? I don't know. It's going to be like a fine art market. It's like, you know, people still make lithographs off stone. So, so what's the bad news? Bad news is, well, like I said, we already saw um, the low end of the market and unfortunately maybe even the middle end, uh, such as museums doing fake T-Rexes. People will gravitate to cheap and free 
you know, and good enough, I'll say, not good, but good enough for the client, which would be different for you and me. Right. I mean, it's the fields where people are already working digitally that is, we're going to see an interesting thing happen. I think a lot of people will find themselves less employable because some of these tasks are going to be sped up or outsourced to AI development. People already in the field or who are being kept in because they're wanted in some way to still be a human who can think and evaluate and create. I see them as they're going to embrace AI. They already are. Uh, they already were even before it went mainstream mm -hmm. as part of their workflow. Because who doesn't want to do parts of the job that are laborious faster? If you just need some prop or asset that's going in the background or or you're just mocking up ideas for the client and you're going to do the real art after they approve one of them, you don't want to waste time on that. So yeah, you're going to crank it through in mm, whatever makes arguable. it faster. I've yeah. heard that. I've heard that argument on another podcast where mm -hmm. they're like, just use AI for all the development stuff yeah. and then create and then make the finished art or the real quote, real art right. later. Yeah. And I want to say, mm. I'm, not, I'm not saying I like this. I'm yeah. saying it's reality. Yeah. I don't agree um, with that. Okay. You know, people are photo bashing already. It's not that much different, just a heck of a lot more convenient. And now you've got tools where you can control the AI a bit more. You can say, well, I want the composition to follow this map, and it will. Uh, so already it's it's getting more customizable, I'll say. And people, you know, you can in-paint and out-paint and put it through other programs to perfect faces and this and that. Yeah. We're just going to see more and more of that. Um, just in the, the, I started kind of paying attention to this almost a year ago. And in, in well, let's say it's been 10 months, I guess it just so fast exceeded my ability to keep up as a bystander. And I'm seeing even people who are actively doing it saying they can't keep up with the advances. They're coming so right, fast. Right, right. So that makes it really dangerous to predict. What's interesting is like, I don't know. It, none, nothing's going to go away entirely, but the proportions mm -hmm. will change. Right. And some people will benefit from that and some won't. The panic, the AI panic over the past however many months or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think I could say I'm not panicking. I am mm -hmm. angry and I've yeah. been angry on the podcast about AI, but I'm not panicking about it because I refuse to not refuse. I, 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 it's difficult to process how somebody typing something in can be as, as analytical, as conscientious, you know, the, the process, the, the allowing creativity and curiosity through the process to get to the final product so much of the value of the illustration is in that part of creating the illustration. You, mm -hmm. I just, it's hard for me to grasp like removing that center gut and just skipping to the end and, and, and believing that that final is on par with finals from human mm -hmm. artists. And I think yeah. when people, the people who are truly freaking about it are implicitly admitting that, there is illustration work out there that is replaceable mm -hmm. and yeah. it might be their own. I don't know, yeah. but it just, it's yeah. like how, I mean, if you guys really, do you think this is going to replace us that quickly, that easily, then something else is up. Mm -hmm. Like what is it replacing? I haven't mm -hmm. fully fleshed out that part of my thought process on AI on how mm -hmm. maybe illustrators are actually admitting that their work is replaceable and if that's yeah. the case then what are you going to do about it right i i'm not fully formed on that thought process so please nobody 
you know, email me or cancel <laughs> me or, you know, force me to shoot myself in the head with a rifle. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it's maddening. And yeah. we are trying to crystal ball everything, which is really hard when the pieces are moving so fast. Right. The thing is how we engage with art making as artists uh, is completely different to how non-artists relate to the product of art. Going to back them, to the construction workers. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's a result. They don't know how it got here but they've got an opinion about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, of course, not necessarily an informed opinion, but if, if it satisfies them for their needs or their appreciation or whatever, uh, they'll be fine with it, and they don't care how it got here. I mean, this is, this is a really old argument in all the art fields um, around taste and quality and all of these very sure. loaded ideas, which is, you know, is it a legitimate thing or not? <laughs> Going back to like the dudes waiting in line in, in front of me at yeah. Wawa, yeah. what I think collectively we've all admitted is that we just haven't over however many decades done an adequate enough job in educating the public on what mm. is a good quality illustration, on mm. why illustration is important to them in their day-to-day lives. And now we're kind of getting bitten in the ass about it. Yeah, well, look at all the canceled art programs in schools, right? Right. Yeah. Yep, that's uh, part of it. Mm-hmm. And again, also this attitude that's been anti-illustration that is now going back over 100 years uh, where writing and reading was more important than picturing and having visual literacy. This is the outcome, is that people don't really have a respect for it or the intellectual work that goes into developing pictures to visualizing something. Right. So they're... they're Going off a, a diet of, um, I don't know, popular culture without that's just sort of washing over our eyeballs and our brains without necessarily any critical awareness of it, mm-hmm. relating to it in really basic gut level, which is, uh, does it remind me of something I already know? Uh, that's a hardwired thing. People look for what they recognize or they notice what they recognize. Mm-hmm. Does it give me an emotion that I like? Is it cute? Does it remind me of my dog? Um, mm-hmm. things like that. And like, I think those are really legitimate reactions, but they don't have to be just blunt like that. Like right. start, start, you know, parsing that a little more. Right. Everything is in a context. So where are you encountering that image? How did it get there? Who made that decision? Why are you seeing that not something else? Mm-hmm. Um, people forget that part. And that's as equally as important as what you're looking at is what you're not looking at. I, I just wonder, like, 100 years from now, right, there's a Jaylene Grove who's, you know, curating a book on the history of the past 100 years of illustration, and they include art created via AI generators. And mm-hmm. instead of, yeah, instead of like, uh, you know, this is Maurice Sendak, Where the Wild Things Are, Watercolor and Pen and Ink, it'll mm-hmm. be like, this is Joe Schmo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the piece is, you know, dinosaur in front of the Capitol building. And mm-hmm. the medium is, and I quote, typed in dinosaur in front of Capitol building, typed in dark clouds, typed in steel Dave McKean art, enter. Like, that's the medium. So let's remember that cataloging and documenting isn't necessarily the same as celebrating. Right. Mm, like just because they're in a book doesn't mean we like it <laughs> It's in a book because it's historically relevant. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know. Like uh, Stephen Heller, for instance, has done books on Nazi propaganda. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Right. He's bought not 
probably got some shit for it though uh i don't know you should ask him that um so uh, i mean i'm already showing ai art my art history class my illustration history class as of last year because i'm like this is what's coming here is the first published cover that was Mm. made with ai um you know, and then we talk about the new terminology coming out of that. What is driving it? Um, What's the reaction that you get from the kids? Not. Are they all like gasp? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's been a lot of horror. Okay, good, <laughs> I good. Say, I was hope. I was. Thank you. Good. Yeah. I was hoping yeah. that that was the answer instead of like, oh no, they yeah. were all cool with it. Then yeah. I would have fallen out of my chair. Well, I mean, like I said, the ones in the fields where this may actually turn out to be an important piece of the puzzle of getting to the next version of whatever that field is doing um, may find ways to actually turn this into a tool as opposed to us being the tool of it, which is kind of where I feel like we're at right now. Um, So I'm not going to close the door on that possibility yet because we just haven't seen it. Like, okay, so the technology is developing so fast and we're being flooded by the stuff that's instant. Art takes time. I don't care what media tool or or assistance you're using to get something that will actually be interesting, provocative, Mm -hmm. deep. You have to wait. The people who are going to do something worthy with AI, if such a worthy thing exists, need more time to do it. So wait a couple of years and then we'll know. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's too soon to call it right now, I think. (sighs) Now I got off track with what I was going to say. <laughs> you know, I, I just wish I, I wish I had you as an as a illustration, as a history teacher, not just illustration, just an overall history teacher when I was at RISD. Because uh, uh-huh. I don't remember who the teacher was for my art history class, freshman year foundation. Um, mm-hmm. But it was not as enjoyable as this conversation. Let's just put it that way. So, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> When you burrow into your particular field, then the history starts That's to become true. interesting. Uh, doing the, the mandatory survey that everyone gets in first year art school uh, could be a bit tedious, yeah. um, except for a few people who are already hooked. Right. You know, because you haven't figured out yet what your geeky thing is. Right. And quite honestly, most high school students are far more steeped in popular culture than they are in museum culture. Right. And so if instead you got a survey of visual culture, or in particular popular visual culture, instead of the, you know, Giotto to Picasso thing, plus Romans, um, <laughs> you'd probably be more interested. Right. <laughs> it's probably why it's probably why I remember Fragonard so clearly because at the time yeah. when I learned about Fragonard, I was like, "Oh, that sounds like Fraggle Rock." And yeah, that's it. That, and now <laughs> I know Fragonard. That that's just anyway. Um, I, we should. I'm just noticing the time, and it's yeah. we're getting up there. So um, we talked about the history. We talked about the future. But let's obviously mm-hmm. remember we are in the present. There are folks mm-hmm. listening to us who want to be illustrators, who are illustrators. What would be one piece of advice that you would want to share with them yeah. directly? Okay, so I'll, I'll speak as an educator here for because mm-hmm. hopefully students listen to this program. <laughs> um, and I guess that is I've moved more and more towards saying that illustration at the current moment is really best paired with a specialization in some other subject that's not an art subject. Okay, so go get really knowledgeable about some other thing can be anything because you can illustrate anything. And if you get expert in that other thing and you're pairing it with your illustration practice, now you've got a niche that's all your own. 
-hmm. And that will distinguish you from all the other people, which you need to do to survive in a capitalist economy. You need to be unique. Uh, And it's obviously something you're interested in. So uh, as they always say, you know, try and get paid to do what you like. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you will be doing real service for that other community um, because they need illustrators too. Every single piece of information, field, whatever it is, I don't care, needs to be represented visually somehow. You can be that person. To learn more about Jaylene, visit jaylenegrove.com. If you find value in this podcast, please consider supporting it as a patron. Become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash illustration D-E-P-T. In return, you can receive our soft enamel pin, a reusable discount code for 10% off, access to dozens of patron-only episodes that we call Extra Credit, and more. This podcast is produced by the Illustration Department, a global leader in online education for illustrators. Visit illustrationdept.com for class offerings, testimonials, the alumni showcase, the podcast show notes, our forum, the bookshop, and more. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.